Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're on location on the Grand Canyon, the Colorado River. We are at mile 56 and a half. Tomorrow we'll be passing the Little Colorado River, going through Lava Chua Rapids, and perchance Hans, definitely Uncar. And we're on location with Carl Karlstrom. Carl is a geologist who specializes in structural geology. Carl teaches at the University of New Mexico. I'm going to be speaking to Carl over the next couple of days before we get to Phantom Ranch and he hikes out about the geology of the Grand Canyon and some of the climbing that he's done around the world. But first, Carl, I'd like to talk to you about your childhood. Where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? So I was born in Virginia, way back east, and uh, you wouldn't think there's a chance for outdoor adventure there, but there actually is. And as a kid, we lived close to a place called Glen Carlin Park. We walked down the street to Glen Carlin Park. There's a creek there. It was a park. It was sort of wild. And for us as kids, it was super wild. And so we would explore the creek and walk down the stream in this way and that way. It was very close to home and adventurous for kids. And we learned a lot about exploring. And And I joined the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts was an influence on me back in the early days. We went on a 100-mile hike on the Appalachian Trail when I was a kid. And that was a major accomplishment, and it was fun. And it got me out into the wilds. We saw a bear. We cooked our own food. We got thirsty and hungry and uncomfortable a few times. All about being out in the outdoors, away from what you'd call a, a civilized, normal life. It, it gives you a chance to get to know your friends that you're hiking with and introspect a little bit. And so that Boy Scout experience for me was, was important. But right around middle school, we moved to Flagstaff, Arizona. My dad is a geologist, as I'm a geologist, and my son is a geologist, three generations. But moving to Flagstaff, my father was working for the U.S. Geological Survey during the space program, during the Apollo launches. He was mapping the quadrangles of the moon, working with Gene Shoemaker and a whole group interested in planetary geology, planetary exploration. So I went out there, and living in Flagstaff, of course, close to the Grand Canyon and a small town, my life changed dramatically, perhaps for the better, probably for the better. And all of a sudden, outdoor experience became much easier to do than through the Boy Scouts or whatever, and we could go out on our own. So I was in middle school and high school. I was hiking in the Grand Canyon by myself, carrying a backpack, And I have to say, there was a thing about the Grand Canyon that sort of grabbed me way back then in high school, let's say, which is the silence. And if you don't listen for the silence, you'll never hear it. But if you go out to a place like the Grand Canyon, sometimes the silence can be deafening. And you're sitting there, and all of a sudden, you're completely enveloped by this outdoors, this tremendous environment that you're in, which involves 
absence of sound, uh, lots of grand views, grand space and time scales. So that sort of captured my imagination about the Grand Canyon. I've been, since age 14, I've been in the Grand Canyon probably every year, shifting from a hiker to a climber to a river runner to a, a scientist. In fact, the early days, the thing that intrigued me was just the vastness of the space and the potential for very exciting climbing and river running. And the geology and the science was not even an inkling in my eye. I did not, <laughs> did not have any interest in the science of the place initially, at least not in a conscious, conscious way. In those days, I was going to school at Northern Arizona University, first high school in Flagstaff High School. And when I was in high school, there was a, I went up one time to a bulletin board at the high school, and there was a little 3 by 5 card that said, Climbing lessons, $5 a day. There were these two guys who had just come from Talkeets Rock from Southern California with pretty good climbing ethic, Scott Baxter and Lee Dexter. They were college kids, and I was a high school kid, so that, they were pretty impressive. And they uh, were offering climbing lessons. So I said, okay. Me and my high school buddy, Mike Kunzelman, signed up for climbing lessons. And we went out. We learned how to belay and dynamic belays and protection. It was all pitons then. No chalk stones or, or modern uh, cams or anything like that. But we learned how the protection went. It was definitely what you called trad climbing. There was nothing else but traditional climbing. And we started climbing. And I got pretty good. And pretty soon Scott Baxter and I sort of took off. That is, the teacher and the student came together. And we started to do first ascents all over Arizona in uh, Granite Mountain and Sedona and the Navajo, out in the Sandstone Towers and the reservation. And, of course, we went to Yosemite. You have to go to Yosemite to climb the classics to sort of get, um, what's the word, initiated. You have to go to Yosemite. But we're also climbing all over the southwest, desert towers. And, you know, the thing about climbing, for me, the Scott Baxter taught me so well, there's a high standard involved. It's a physical activity where your body is challenged. It's a mental activity where your mental stamina is challenged in a way. Your, your ability to be confident in yourself and make good decisions and know what you can do and persevere. So the mental and the physical come together. But the thing about our climbing, which was fantastic, and I think people sometimes forget these days, is it was all about the trip. So we would go on a trip. So we'd go on a trip to, say, uh, El Gran Trono Blanco, this big wall in northern Mexico. No one had climbed there. So we'd go across the border, you know, and, and the big experience of it going into Mexico and then the finding your way on the dirt roads. And it was all about the trip and the people you're with. And so we'd go and we'd climb these first ascents. We'd come back. Or the Kofa Mountains in southern Arizona. Go climb Summit Peak or Monument Peak. And... Uh, in, in the Whipples. And so it was all about the trip and going there and being with people, achieving as much as you could in terms of climbing these new towers, doing it as cleanly as you could, pushing the limits of both the sport of climbing but also your own personal limits. That was a great time during the end of my college years, as it turned out eventually. And then hopping over to become a river runner, same sets of challenges both physically and mentally to uh, develop a skill to run rapids and keep people safe. Did that for a couple summers. And that was all in the context of doing an undergraduate degree in geology. So I still was just actually way more interested in the climbing and in the river running than in the science of the earth itself. But it kind of creeps up on you. So I suspect it was creeping up on me even then. 
I've got to reflect a little bit about the transition from adventure, let's say, wanting to be out in the wilderness, and academia, wanting to understand things. For me, I hated high school. I just hated it. And then I even hated college. I hated it. You sit there and you listen to some blowhard tell you about something, and and I want to be out there experiencing things. I really did. But every once in a while you get a professor or teacher, whatever, that had a glimmer of enthusiasm and excitement about their subject, and those people can make a huge difference to the students. That made an impression on me. Maybe one reason I've gone into education to teach people, because it's a fantastic thing to watch the light bulb go on with some student or whatever. But, But anyway, back to where I was... I came from an academic family, and I was. the academic challenges were not great because the standards were pretty low, but I just wanted to be interested and excited about something, and I didn't see it in academia. And, and so I went through college until I was a junior, and I couldn't decide on a major. I just was taking everything and whatnot, and, and then finally... I think NAU said you had to declare a major by the time you're a junior. So, okay, I'm going to declare a major. What is it going to be? So I went into the physics department, and I said, okay, maybe a physicist. And I went in there, and the secretary was too busy, and the head of the department wasn't there. And I said, to heck with that. I'm going to go downstairs and become a geologist. So I walked downstairs, and the secretary was there, and the head of the department was there. I said, okay, I'm going to be a, be a geologist. They said, great, so sign him up. So it was a little bit of a serendipitous thing. I kind of resisted going into the same field as my father. But that's what I ended up doing. I've enjoyed doing it. I still rebelled in a way because he worked on very young rocks, and I decided I would work on very old rocks. So that's my form of rebellion in my early part of my career. Of course, now I'm working on very young rocks too. So in the end, you kind of come back sometimes to the same types of values and activities your parents do. It's a fortunate or unfortunate thing, but it happens a lot, and it happened in my case. So anyway, I got into geology, got my bachelor's degree, and then at the end of that, I'd taken so many courses, I was so tired of it, I said, I'm never going to college again. I was sick of it. I mean, I was completely sick of sitting in a classroom listening to somebody, and I wanted to go out and experience things. So I formed my own business. I was a pulp wood cutter in Flagstaff. It was Carlstrom Trucking, and I would cut down trees, loaded on my 1949 Ford two-ton truck until there was six tons on there or something, and drive it over the railroad and back and made a little money. And it was that period of time when I was just climbing climbing, climbing every day. That is, I'd work for three or four days, and then I'd climb for three or four days every week with Scott Baxter down at Granite Mountain, and uh, we're doing all these first ascents of really classic routes. It's a great crag, a great place to climb. I did that for two years, and of course, heavy back-breaking work, lifting logs and cutting down trees, and every logger that I knew had a finger missing or a knee cut off or whatever. And so after two years of that, I said, you know what? I'm never going to cut trees again. I'm going back to college. (laughs) So I went back to grad school then, starting 1975, going to about 83. So that's, what is that, eight years or something? So eight more years of grad school and uh, postdoc and whatnot. When students come in and say, hey, I'm tired of school, I say, take some time off and and rejuvenate. Think about what you really want to do. Uh, It's really hard to know exactly how your life's going to fall out. So take some time, experience some things, go travel, and maybe cut a few trees, whatever you're going to do. And it was during that time when I was a lumberjack that I was also a river runner in the summer. You know what I found about river running? I loved running the rapids. I loved being in the Grand Canyon. 
but I wasn't very good with people. I wasn't that good at shepherding neophytes through the Grand Canyon. I couldn't listen to their complaining and, and be compassionate, and I just wasn't that good at going down to their level of, of incompetence, shall we say. And I wasn't a good boatman. I just was a terrible boatman. I ran the rapids well, but I couldn't deal with people. That's a weakness of mine that I've kind of maybe gotten a little better at. But if you see these good boatmen today, they deal with people at their own level. Grand Canyon is a wonderful experience for all these passengers. I'm so impressed with the younger generation of boatmen that have both the skills of running the rapids and also the skills of dealing with people. So that's a bit of an aside, but I got to tell you about one climb. We have a lot of great first ascents and, and we're in a bunch of guidebooks and we were lucky to be uh, climbing at a fairly high standard at a time when there were many routes that were just crying to be done. But one of the ones was the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, the Painted Wall. Painted Wall is the third highest cliff in the North America, some say. We went, Scott Baxter, myself, and Rusty Bailey, this uh, Rhodesian climber, South African Rhodesian climber, who by, by way of Scotland. Uh, three of us tried it. One year, failed, got halfway up, uh, but a little higher than Leighton Core had gotten some years before. Came back down, and then the next year we went back with a party of four. Dave Lovejoy joined us. And we spent nine days on this wall, and it's a vertical wall. There was one ledge on the route, and in that nine days of mostly direct aid, it was about, a, I think it was five, nine, a5 or something, A4. It was a very hard climb on Rotten Rock, but that achievement of climbing, doing the first ascent of the Painted Wall was one of the major experiences, I think, of, of my climbing career. Funny thing about that, my son and his climbing partner tried to repeat that a few years ago, so we wanted to go and sit on the south rim of the Black Canyon, watch them do the route, and so uh, that was great. They got about as high as we did on the first attempt, so their first attempt and our first attempt were about the same, but that's a gorgeous climbing place, the Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Very serious, traditional climbing, that not for the faint of heart. And the painted wall is a, is a spectacular line on a spectacular wall in a spectacular canyon. That was a good achievement. All those climbing achievements actually, what do they do for you? Well, they're, they're gratifying at the time. But I think they give you a sense of, A, knowing how to fail, and B, knowing how to succeed and see putting your success in perspective. What does it mean to do a first ascent? Well, you're lucky you got there at the right time, you had good weather, had enough water, had good climbing partners. But again, it's all about the trip. It's this experience, it's the journey, you know, that the overall experience of going with these friends to climb this route was the thing that shapes personalities and probably is way more important in the long run than having done the first ascent or the second ascent or whatever. It's that experience with your compatriots that's really memorable. We are on location on the Grand Canyon at mile 56 and a half of the Colorado River, on location with Carl Karlstrom, who is a structural geologist. Carl, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you of your early outdoor adventures. You know, I did say we go to the Yosemite off and on to try ourselves out against these traditional routes. I have the distinction of having failed on the Salathe Wall on El Capitan three times. So, you know, you learn your failures. But the highest we got on the Salathe Wall is about, oh, halfway up or something. Past the stove leg cracks, the traverse where you pendulum over, get into the stove leg cracks go up this very hard our jam crack and then uh, we run out of water and we were just getting totally dehydrated and cramped and all that 
So we got to this little tiny ledge, and this little tiny ledge, and that was as far as we're gonna go. And so Scott Baxter named that ledge Hotel California. And so, <laughs> so it goes, yeah, I don't know how it goes, but you know, plenty of room at the Hotel California. It's a lovely place. Ah, oh, such a lovely place. Anyway, it goes like that. This ledge was about, oh, maybe a foot or two wide, and it was sloping. And so you couldn't even put a water bottle up and it would stand straight, but you could at least get your butt in your hammock kind of against this. It was a perspective on the Hotel California scene that uh, stays with me. Hey there, Mandela here. I just wanted to take a short break and let you know about the clothing that I find myself wearing when I'm recording the trail less traveled and traveling around the world. It's Karuna clothing, handcrafted from natural fabrics, which soften as they age. It's clothing lines that are designed to fit the moods of the places which inspire you. The clothing is designed simply, and they use the best fabrics. Karuna clothing creates their own unique colors. It's strong and well-sewn with love and laughter. With design workshops in Missoula, Montana, as well as Mendocino County, California, all of the clothing is sewn and dyed in the United States, and all of the workers are paid good living wages. They are a young company, but you can already find Karuna clothing being sold in fine women's clothing shops and boutiques throughout the West. Visit karunaclothing.com to find out more. And now back to the trail less traveled with Mandela. We are on location on the Grand Canyon, just below the Little Colorado River. We're at mile 65, and today we did the Carbon to Lava Chuar hike. These guys talked a lot about the geology of the area, and we're here doing the guide training seminar trip for the Grand Canyon River Guides Association. These two are acting as the current geologists on the trip, and you guys are hiking out on Monday at Phantom Ranch, so we only have two more nights to record this interview, but we're going to now talk about the geology of the Grand Canyon. Lori Crossy and Carl Karlstrom are two professors of geology at the University of New Mexico. And we're going to talk about the geology of the Grand Canyon, starting with the youngest rocks and working our way back in time. So I'm going to hand it over to you guys. We've been so privileged to transition our adventure lifestyles, if you want to call it that, from outdoor sports to understanding the planet we live on, geology. Grand Canyon, of course, is one of the most spectacular geologic laboratories on Earth. We have about half of Earth history recorded here very well, laid bare, if you will, uh, for all to study in the rock layers of Grand Canyon. It's a little hard to decide whether to start from the oldest rocks and come to the most recent things. That would be like telling a story from the beginning or to start with the youngest things that we understand better and work back. What do you think we should do? I think in Grand Canyon, especially on a river trip like we're doing now, we start upstream in younger strata, and we float our way down through the rock layers and down into eventually the basement rocks. And so we're going from young to old. 
And for society, I think sometimes the relevance of geology has to do with how processes on Earth affect things like our water or our resources. And generally, those are also some young aspects of the geosciences. So today we had the fantastic opportunity to visit the confluence of the Little Colorado River with the Colorado River. And it's an incredible place. We saw the beautiful blue waters, Caribbean blue, startlingly blue, very unexpected. And that's a very special place because the water in the Little Colorado River, unless it's a flash flood, is a very small flow, actually. And it entirely is based on the emergence of spring waters far up the canyon, 10 miles up. We, we didn't hike up to the source of that beautiful blue water, but it comes out of the ground. We didn't have the time to do that hike today. So those waters are some of the lower world waters that I love looking at and studying. The uh, waters are laden with calcium carbonate. They precipitate a beautiful white coating on all the rocks, and the reflection of the blue waters is just amazing. The travertine is a special kind of rock name. It's, it's one of the youngest rocks in Grand Canyon. There are two types of young rocks that we find in Grand Canyon. One is the travertine, the deposits, the other being the basalts and lavas that pour out on the surface that won't be visible until we get farther into the western Grand Canyon. So the travertines we also had the opportunity to visit today at River Left at Quagant, which was at mile 57, and we saw some essentially fossil water, the mineral deposits left by flowing waters and flowing springs in the river corridor. And we've been able to use those deposits to date things. It's very hard to date things in this eroding landscape of the Colorado River, the giant canyon, and the river is constantly carrying material away from the area. So it's not an easy place to save anything, to save any geologic record. But the travertines, by cementing the rock with calcium carbonate, have preserved things like the former river channels higher in the landscape. That's allowed us to learn a lot about the Colorado River. But back to the water, I'm looking off to the south here. Oh, look, there's a light in the Desert View Tower. We're supposed to figure out which lights are shining because they want to shut those off. But in front of that view of Desert View Tower, I'm seeing a pretty black-looking sky, and I think we're going to get a big rainstorm coming in before we finish this interview. But nevertheless, if that happens, that would be water, if you want to think about it, that's coming from the top down. It's falling out of the sky as rain or or maybe in the winter as snow melt and gets down into the water once it hits the ground of course can percolate down. So of course some will run off but it'll percolate down to become groundwater. But that's only one kind of groundwater we have here in Grand Canyon. And so why don't you talk a minute about the different kinds of water. I think it's such a neat story to think about different waters that are here in Grand Canyon. Well most people are familiar with the idea of hot springs. There's some wonderful hot springs in various places in the Rocky Mountains. Hot springs are waters that come up from depth. They're another type of groundwater. They've circulated more deeply through the earth and they take advantage of the the structures, the big faults, and move up through those interstices in the rock and mingle with the waters that are coming down from above. So we have just a fantastic mixing puzzle to try to figure out what changes the quality of the water that we rely on for groundwater. So that's kind of the geology of the story of groundwater is also laid bare here in Grand Canyon because we're incised deeply into these different confining water units. 
and we have the opportunity to sample water at all different levels because of the canyon that we're immersed in. So the river, we're just right beside the Colorado River, and that water comes from the Rocky Mountains snowmelt. And then I'm looking at this cloud that's about to burst on us, and that's water that comes from rain and snowfall right here in the Grand Canyon region. And then those other springs, like Blue Springs, that feeds Little Colorado, are so different. They're just different chemistry, they're different temperature, that's a third kind of water. Do you want to even talk about a fourth kind of water? I don't know. Well, some of the other fluids, besides water actually, the water that comes up from depth is not just pure water. It's not like the fresh snow melt that's coming down the river channel. This water has a lot of dissolved solids, it has heavy metals, and it's actually carbonated. It fizzes almost like a soda pop in some places where it comes out. And that's because it's highly charged with CO2. These are carbonic fluids. And they interact with rock materials at depth. It's looking in detail, as a low-temperature geochemist, I look in detail at the chemistry of those waters to try to listen to the water, to have the water tell me the story of where it's traveled deep in the earth. And one of the amazing things we found out is that just like the lavas that we're going to find further downstream, there's a tectonic component, that is the deep earth is influencing what we find here at the surface by way of conveying that interaction up to the surface through these deeply sourced springs. So we got the far-traveled Colorado River water from the Rockies, we got upper world waters that come from the rain and the snow, and then we have the lower world waters which come up these faults, kind of like hot springs. And they all mix, and it's, it's a great puzzle to try and see how those lower world waters might degrade water quality, etc. So it's a fascinating story in the incised aquifer of Grand Canyon. So if you think about this big hole in the ground that we call the Grand Canyon, we're thinking about it as a window or a way to look at groundwater because it's cut through all these aquifer units, and we can see lower world and upper world waters. How did this canyon get carved? That's something that we've turned our attention to in, in terms of our research. The basic thing that people need to understand is a very young canyon carved into very old rocks. And this, that simple message is sort of the first order thing, but how young is young? We'll get to how old is old. Boy, that look at that rain coming. <laughs> how young is this thing we call the Grand Canyon? It's very difficult to date an erosional landscape because the stuff that was here in the canyon is gone. It's been eroded away, taken away, and we have to rely on very interesting, sophisticated techniques to try and date the carving of the Grand Canyon. One way is to use the travertines. We're just talking about gravels that are cemented by travertines, which we can date with U-series methods and find out how fast the canyon is carving in the last half a million years. We know that pretty well now. It's about the thickness of a piece of paper every year. The Colorado River is carving down through the bedrock. That's an average rate, sometimes faster, sometimes slower. So it seems slow, but geologic time is long and the canyon is carving about the thickness of a piece of paper every year to create the Grand Canyon. That's only back in the last million years or so. And so what about before that? There's various theories. One theory is the Grand Canyon was carved by rivers that were 70 million years old or 50 million years old, and they carved a canyon that then is being reused by the Colorado River. We don't think that's the case. We think that the Colorado River became integrated from the Rockies to the Gulf of California in the last five or six million years. So that's geologically, I mean, that's a long time, of course, five or six million years, but, but uh, it's very short geologically. So... 
what happened five to six million years ago, this the snow melt from the Rockies uh, was gathered together into drainages, which uh, found their way across the Colorado Plateau, over the edge of the plateau, uh, in, in the present area of the western Grand Canyon, and all the way to the Gulf of California. We can look at the sediments that, that filled the Gulf, and the first arrival of sands that looked like they came from the Colorado Plateau, or is 5.3 million years ago. First arrival of fossils that came from the Colorado Plateau is about the same time. So we feel pretty sure that the canyon was carved, or was that the river, the Colorado River, reached the Gulf in the last five to six million years, and since then it's deepened the canyon. But were there any, the question that's now emerging that's so fascinating is, is what did the landscapes look like when the rivers first got integrated? And how did they uh, get integrated? We, we think now that we have evidence for um, paleo valleys, paleo canyons that got linked together uh, that had been carved earlier. And then all of a sudden we have rivers and canyons of, say, 25 million years of age that we need to figure out where they went and uh, how much of the landscape we see today was carved at that time that then was recarved or redeepened in the last five to six million years. But uh, so it's a it's a major debate the age of Grand Canyon. I think we're 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 honing in on a a new way of looking at it, which is that different segments of the canyon have different histories, and some really were carved partially. It's 70 million years or 50 million years, and others at 25. But the main canyon, like 80 percent of the rock that's missing now, that we call the Grand Canyon, was taken away by the Colorado River and its tributaries in the last five to six million years. You think that's too uh, dogmatic? or No, I think it's a fantastic detective story. But I wanted to maybe just take a minute and put a spotlight on a northern part of that story, a part that takes the Colorado River and looks at one of the paleo canyons that today is part of the Grand Canyon, but maybe had a very maybe had a very different course. That's the Bell River. The Bell River is a is a very interesting story that takes a piece of of one of those old drainage systems, brings it north across Montana and through part of Canada and all the way to the Labrador Sea, if you can believe that. So well, let's talk a little bit about that theory, which is put forward by somebody from Montana. That yeah, that's a great that's a great hypothesis. And you know the the thing about uh, uh, being out of doors and and doing exciting things, you meet people. And one of the people I've known for many years was Jim Sears. Jim Sears uh, worked in uh, in the Grand Canyon when he, for his master's thesis. He mapped these rocks we're sitting in right now, the Uncar Group. And we knew each other, and we've known each other for years. And he's off at Montana now, and I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But those contacts you make early in in, uh, in doing uh, exciting and adventurous things, you sort of hang on to. And he discovered in Montana these gravels that uh, the Montana folks don't have a clue where they came from. And then another colleague of ours, Paul Link, in Idaho, has these gravels in Idaho. He doesn't know where they come from. He, and so they studied them a little bit, and they said, well, they could have come from the Colorado Plateau. And... Of course, we have a 25 to 15 million year old Paleo Canyon we have to carve at that 
same time that these gravels were being deposited in Idaho and Montana. So hey, maybe maybe the this Paleo River went north from Grand Canyon region through the Basin and Range through Idaho and Montana. But then where did it go? It turns out the Canadians have already published this idea that there was a continental scale river system, the Bell River, as Laurie just mentioned, that emptied into the Labrador Sea. And it sounds crazy, but think of South America right now. South America has the Andes on one side, and then the Amazon River system drains the east side of the Andes and dumps into the Atlantic Ocean. So the Bell River is a kind of a North American counterpart. It would have been um, not the drainage we see today, of course, because the Mississippi River uh, takes stuff from Montana down uh, into the Gulf of Mexico. But drainages change, rivers change uh, their configuration. So the idea of the Bell River was at 25 to 15 million years ago, major river system might have originated. Headwaters would be here in the Grand Canyon, and the river might have flowed northwest and eventually north and then northeast and then ended up in Labrador. It's a really dramatic hypothesis and science moves forward by testing dramatic hypotheses and that's the key. How do we test it? So we, we have ideas how to test it. We're going to date the grains out in the Labrador Sea and these cores that they've drilled. We're going to date the grains in Montana and in Idaho and we're going to look for the the distinctive kinds of ages of grains and maybe microfossils that have to be, uh, that tell you about the source in the Colorado Plateau. So it's a story yet to be told, and in a way the, you know, the excitement of, of investigating new ideas is, uh, is every bit as, as rewarding as uh, investigating a new climbing route or whatever, you know. It's very exciting to those who are hooked into uh, the the passion of science as we seem to be. A lot of times when I come back from a research trip, there's a, there's a couple of things that my mom asks me about. First question she has is, how come there's no pictures of people in, in your photographs, Lori? Because I'm always taking a picture of a rock or a fault or whatever. So the, the, the focus of, of my camera is not always where she thinks it should be. She wants to see who I'm traveling with and what we're doing. So... I've learned to take more pictures to satisfy that curiosity of my mom. The other thing, though, is is uh, is this concept that wow, you know, Grand Canyon is really old, and people have been down there for over a hundred years. Don't we already know everything about Grand Canyon? And the amazing thing about the geosciences is we are just waiting for any new technology, any new technique to apply to these ancient rocks and processes to understand the earth in a better way. The geologists were right there behind um, when Marie Curie discovered radioactivity. It was just a couple of years before the first geologist had the oldest rock in a laboratory to use the radiometric clocks to date the oldest rocks on earth. The geologists had already put together a story of how rocks were older or younger, based on their relationships. But what they didn't have was a way of telling the time, the age of the rocks. And as soon as that process was understood, there we were with the rocks in the lab. And even today in materials sciences, it's the geoscientists that are pushing the limits of, of uh, applying that technology to the natural world and to the record around us. 
So geologists are really great about that. And, you know, even though, yeah, we go out in the field, we have a backpack, we have a rock hammer, we, we carry maps, we're bringing rocks back and we're putting them into some of the most high-tech labs that we have uh, in the nation. So it's really an exciting time to be a geoscientist and to apply these new techniques to the old rocks and to the problems that have confounded people for over 100 years in the case of the Grand Canyon. You know, as a as a rock climber, maybe your legacy is your first ascents as a river runner, your descents and your successes and and uh, and uh, on on the river and and uh, and all of those things are intertwined with people that you go with, of course, on those trips. But uh, in geology, your legacy, in a way, is your the, your contributions to new knowledge and to uh, to the scientific literature. You have to publish it because if you don't publish it, it doesn't it doesn't live past you. Uh, it doesn't live on. And I think, you know, we've been working on Grand Canyon for about 30 years, trying to understand it and its different chapters and the the uh, age of the rocks and then the, the age of the carving of the young canyon through those old rocks and then the nature of the waters that emerge into this incised aquifer system. And in that 30 years of work, I think maybe our biggest contribution is the timing, the ages, the geochronology that tell what happened when and, and how old is this rock and how old is that rock. And then from that, you get a sense of the, the deep time aspect of geology. Geology is, uh, is a science which has that to contribute to, to uh, society, this idea of time and the, and the great, great antiquity of the earth and what's the place of humans in that long history that we, uh, uh, we understand Mother Earth to have had. So I think the geochronology has, has been a very important part. And in a way, after discussing the aquifer and then the Young Canyon carved into old rocks, maybe we should talk about the rocks themselves. Well, I actually want to switch the topic from rocks because we've talked about geology, and I think there's another thing, another aspect of Grand Canyon geology that's an incredible opportunity, and that is training the new generation of geoscientists. We became interested in the geosciences from experience we had in the natural world, and many, many people come to Grand Canyon, and it's their first real glimpse of deep time and of the sort of awesome history of the earth uh, kind of revealed in these rocks around us. So to be able to bring students to a place like Grand Canyon and to have, you know, sort of firsthand knowledge of how we're learning about the history of Grand Canyon is just an amazing, you know, sort of privilege. And so to have the students that we've been able to work with over the years, whether they're undergraduate students or whether they're graduate students or whether they're students from other places that join us for a field trip, even in the case of the guides training trip that we're participating in now, I'll bet you that more than one or two of those people has a leaning towards the geosciences and uh, might find their way uh, further into the field as a geoscientist. So for us, that's just a fantastic opportunity and to be able to do that in this great national park is is just amazing well that's right your academic children are your students and and they carry on too in a way and train other students and then uh, that's a great legacy as well 
And in fact, that's probably the most fun. I think you're right. That might be more fun in a way than than the the actual science. I don't know. I don't know. Would you rather work with students or just go out there and do it yourself? I mean, come on. <laughs> I I think the the joy of working and collaborating with people is really one of the most fun things about science. But it it does take all types, and there are uh, there are many people that would seek out the absolute best place on Earth to solve their particular interesting problem. And Grand Canyon is a magnet for many problems in the geosciences. So you have all types of, of scientists working down here. And of course, we're just focusing on the geoscience, but whether you're a biologist or an archaeologist, even a sociologist, you have plenty of opportunity down here in this amazing place. So the the uh, Grand Canyon, okay, the history, half the history of the Earth is uh, recorded in rocks of Grand Canyon, and it's a sort of mind-boggling amount of time. So we break it up into uh, chapters, let's call them chapters, and we already talked about the youngest chapter, which would be the carving, youngest chapters, I guess, the carving of Grand Canyon, and the uh, exposing of this incised aquifer and what it's doing to modern water, uh, groundwater and surface water, uh, interesting problems. But if we talk about the rocks themselves that are exposed in the walls of the Grand Canyon, the old rocks that are exposed in the Young Canyon, we kind of divide it into three chapters. We kind of argue about how many chapters, but I'm going to say three. And the uppermost one, the youngest one, since we're working our way backwards, would be the horizontal uh, strata, the horizontal rock layers of the Paleozoic and the Mesozoic eras. And that's um, the, the time of evolution of animal life. And, and uh, you know, the Mesozoic was the time of the dinosaurs and the reptiles. That's mostly eroded from the Grand Canyon region. The Paleozoic rocks, which are so evident, make up the beautiful colors whites and reds and greens that f make Grand Canyon such a spectacular landscape uh, are, are Paleozoic in age from 540 million to 250 million years ago. So that's, the, that's what most people marvel at when they go to the park and stare over the edge into this uh, Grand Canyon. But below them there's another set of rocks we call the Tilted Strata, if you want to talk about it in a, in a very... Uh, sort of casual way, the, the, the more formal names for those are the Ankar and Chuar group, the Grand Canyon Supergroup, which are were tilted before the flat-lying layers were deposited on top of them. And those, those strata record the assembly of a supercontinent, the Rodinian supercontinent. That's the whole history of the Earth is the assembly and breakup of land masses of continents into supercontinents. We could talk about that more. But So the, so the uh, Grand Canyon Supergroup is the history of the assembly of the Rodinian supercontinent and its breakup, and also the snowball Earth, time of uh, most extreme climate change that the Earth has ever seen, as far as we know. So the, so the Grand Canyon Supergroup, the second of the chapters going backwards, uh, is, uh, is an interesting one. And then the earliest chapter in Grand Canyon is the the Vishnu basement rocks, we call them. 
and uh, John Wesley Powell called them the dreaded granites because the rapids were hard and the and the rocks are hard and the the white water was was more challenging within the Vishnu basement rocks. So the Vishnu basement rocks we'll talk about too, which is the history, the assembly of this part of our continent, of this part of North America, was uh, came together as uh, smaller bits of of volcanic arcs and oceanic plateaus that got sort of mashed together into what we, the beginnings of the continental lithosphere of this part of North America. So we can talk about from the bottom up now, the assembly of the continent in the Vishnu basement rocks, the assembly and breakup of a supercontinent. Oh, it's almost dinner time. Uh, during the Grand Canyon Supergroup, and then the evolution of life in the flat-lying rocks, the Paleozoic rocks. So, I don't know, maybe you want to add anything to that? Okay, so that, I mean, that's a start, and, and we'll maybe talk about those more later if we have time. We are on location on the Grand Canyon at mile 65, camped just above Lava Chua Rapid, also known as Lava Canyon Rapid. And we're on location here with two wonderful geologists, Lori Crossy and Carl Karlstrom. Next week, we're going to continue where Carl left off, but let's go ahead and play a song. Lori, what song reminds you of the formation of the supercontinents and the collaboration of geoscientists in this day and age? Well, there's really only one song that I can think of that, that brings together both those great themes, and that's a song by the Turtles, and it's called So Happy Together. If you haven't already, go ahead and check out our official website, traillesstraveled.net. You can subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, I'd like to take a moment to thank some of you who have taken the time to write us a review. This week, I'd like to thank Mission Medic, who says, I love it when Mandela takes me along with her on her adventures and shares her amazing encounters with the people and their perspectives she meets along the way. Because truly, it is all about the people you meet and their differences and similarities that make for a new experience. A true adventurer. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much, Mission Medic, for taking the time to write that. And you, too, can help out in a big way to spread the word of this new genre called Adventure Radio by taking a few seconds to write us a review on iTunes. And then next week, I'll give a shout-out to you. We are on location on the Grand Canyon, just above Phantom Ranch at mile 87. We're camped tonight at Cremation Camp. Usually when I'm here, it's really, really hot, but it's April now, so it's actually kind of nice. I'm on location with Lori Crossy and Carl Karlstrom, two geologists who have been teaching us about the geology of the Grand Canyon for the Guide Training Seminar 2014. And they both teach geology at the University of New Mexico. Carl, let's end the show with three outdoor adventure tips three tips. Okay, number one, it's all about the trip. You can be going to climb a summit, you can be going to run the river, but it's the trip. It's the process of the whole trip. Every single time you go on a trip, just be open to the fact that's going to be one of the most memorable things you've ever done. Number two, good gear. There's no such thing as bad weather, only bad gear. I'll echo that tip. 
Number three merges my number one with my song, my request for the song, and that is love the ones you're with. Slightly different message I'm portraying, which is love the ones you're with. You've been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, Missoula's source for outdoor information and inspiration. I want to thank my guest for this week, Dr. Carl Karlstrom. Next week, we will be spotlighting his partner, fellow geologist and professor, Dr. Laura Crossy. Carl is a professional climber and a professor of structural geology and tectonics at the University of New Mexico. His recent research activities have emphasized the structure and evolution of the continental lithosphere under the Rocky Mountain Colorado Plateau region and the Protozoic to Quaternary history of the Grand Canyon region. His 2014 Nature Geoscience paper proposes a solution to the 140-year-long debate about the age of the Grand Canyon. Find us on Facebook and take a look at trail1033.com to view pictures, read biographies, podcast previous shows, and discover suggested links from all of the guests featured on The Trail Less Traveled. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested outdoor adventure series, which aims to take its listener back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. If you know of someone with good adventure stories, please contact me. For every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how the community can start adventuring in the same fashion. My adventure tip this week is to take care of your feet. If you start to feel a blister coming on, place a piece of mole skin or a bandage between the skin and your sock inside the shoe. If the skin has already begun to blister, use a blister treatment like glacier gel to create a buffer and keep the wound stable, moist, and clean. That's it for this week, Missoula. But until next week, get out there and shred the gnar. Because, you know, the thing about the gnar is... It simply doesn't shred itself.